0: Let me uh, <clears throat> let me immediately wreck the schedule of the new year by adding something in. I was uh, I was sitting there uh, praying for the sermon, and uh, you know what? What hit me was uh, that I was praying, but I was really talking at God, and I realized I had been doing that all morning. I. You know how sometimes you just immediately engage with other people, but you don't engage, you're just talking at them. You're using them, using them, exchanging information. You haven't said, how are you? Good morning. That's been me with God this morning. Maybe some of you, it's the same way. So I thought maybe before I talked, we could together just close our eyes and say good morning to the God who made us. Good morning again, Lord Jesus. We've been uh, thinking of you maybe or talking at you, but good morning. Thank you so much for stopping us just for a second, stopping us to remind us that you love us. Remind us of that love throughout this hour, please, and let us keep an ear to what you might say to us. Amen. Well, I was uh, I was at the gym a day before yesterday now, and um, I, I bumped into somebody, and uh, from here, uh, he's usually sitting right there, so I can't embarrass him. There's a hole in the pew. He's doing better at getting to the gym than getting to church, so... Uh, <laughs> He'll probably be at the next service, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, I see him. I, I hadn't seen him there before. Go up, and say hi. He goes, "Oh yeah, New Year's resolution. You know, it's going to happen this time. It's going to happen." And I, I wished him well. And uh, and the next day, uh, I'm not at the gym, and he probably is. And the next day, he's not at church, and I probably. Am. It's hard to do these New Year's things, isn't it? We have the best intentions in the world. But all of last year's momentum goes against us. How many of you made a New Year's resolution? Anybody? Okay. Okay. Now let me put it another way. How many of you can think of one significant way that uh, you would like to be in a different place 12 months from now? One significant way that you'd like to be a better person 12 months from now? Uh, raise, Raise your hands again. Could I talk to the three of you who did not raise your hands? (laughs) That's what I'd like to talk about for this next month. Together, we want to talk about how this community can help us become the people God wants us to be. We're going to go through our vision as a church and say, are we helping with that? Connecting to God, becoming the people God designs us to be, because change is so hard. And I thought it would help if we started over by starting over. Go back to the very foundation and say, what's everything else building on? How do I know what I'm supposed to become unless I have a picture from the beginning? So I'd ask you to take out the Bibles in your pews in front of you. If you brought yours, uh, turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Four stories of Jesus, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospel of Mark is probably the first one written down. The others build off of it. Matthew and Luke steal a lot of Mark, and it's just word for word. Mark is the original story. Because of that, the start of Mark's words are the very first words we have about Jesus or from Jesus. So if we want to see what the, the foundation is for a new year... Let's look at Mark, chapter 1, beginning with where it says, after John was put in prison. And our custom here is, uh, this is one of the passages we studied in that 100 key passages thing a couple years ago. If you are reading this, would you please underline something in it? Just to make sure that you're getting something out. I've got four words I'd like you to underline. If they're already underlined, circle them. This is where it starts. After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little further, he saw James and his brother John, the sons of Zebedee, preparing their nets, and immediately called them, and they left their father Zebedee right there in the boat with the hired men and followed Jesus. That's the very start of the very start of Jesus' public life. It gives us a hint of what we're supposed to be doing this next year. And it starts with a word I'd like you to underline. Time. Jesus says, the time has come. Back then, the sign that the time was come was the imprisonment of John the Baptist, his cousin. Now, Jesus has his time. Back then, it was a person going to prison. Now, maybe it's just a new year. You have a new year to take advantage of. God speaks through situations, through events, just as much as God speaks through that still, small voice. Again and again, the time is now. It's an opportunity, but it's also urgent. Don't blow this. Now is the time. The second word comes out of that. The time has come. Repent. Now, we all think we know what repent means because we've all been in church before. For us... Repent means stop sinning, stop being a bad person, become a Christian, be a good person. That's probably not exactly what Jesus meant. When Jesus said repent, it's another word for turn, Jesus probably meant turn away from the idea that the political agenda of driving the Romans out of Israel is what's going to save you. It's not going to save you. Turn away from that. He says, turn away from your religion back to God. Turn away from religion, turn back to God. Repent means turn around from what distracts you to what can save you. And that leads to, the time has come, repent, believe. The third thing is believe. I don't know if your translation says believe in the good news or just believe, but what Jesus is talking about here is believe in something, trust something. Jews trusted all kinds of things. They trusted their ancestry. They were proud of that. They trusted the land God gave them. They trusted the law or the temple. What do we trust? What do you believe in, really? I think Minnesotans... Minnesotans believe that if you're nice, good things will happen. Minnesota nice. I think Minnesotans trust in hard work, trust in church... Just in doing good things, that balances the scale out. All that may be true, but it is not what Jesus says we're supposed to believe in. We are supposed to believe, he says, in the good news. So that's the last thing you should underline in that section. Believe in the good news. What's the good news? Well, for Jesus, the good news is that the kingdom of God is coming and the king is walking among you. Jesus is the king. Come into his kingdom. That's the good news. The coming of the king into the kingdom. Somebody wants to know what Jesus' story is. That's his whole story right there. The time is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. Believe in the good news. That's the story of Jesus. That's why he came. And he says it over and over in different ways. That's what you're supposed to believe. But can I tell you this? Memorizing those four things will not make your year different. That's not what changes my friend's weight or your sense of hope for the coming year. It just makes you try harder. And trying harder doesn't necessarily help you become a better person. Becoming a better person is about the last thing that I want you to underline. Look at that passage again, and when Jesus walks by the Sea of Galilee, he comes to two groups of people, and he says the same thing to them. He says, follow me. Not believe in me, not accept me, follow me. The king is walking by, follow me to the kingdom. This year, I want to suggest that becoming the person you're always meant to be is about following Jesus into the kingdom. And we're going to spend a month, next month, looking at the things that are obstacles to following Jesus. And then we're going to spend all of Lent talking about ways that we can help you follow Jesus better. Because trust me, I know 59 years of willpower has not worked. Willpower will not work. We need to hear... Follow me. The thing is, we hear him say, Follow me, and we don't quite understand it the way the original Jews would have understood it. When he comes up as a rabbi, Rabbi Jesus comes up and says to these fishermen, Follow me, they heard something very different than you and I would have heard. I'm going to steal the rest of this for a guy named Rob Bell, who taught it to me, and he learned it from a guy named Ray Vanderlyn, that you need to learn about the life ...of first century Jews to understand what follow me means. It's tied into their educational system. So up on the up on the wall, I'm going to put the... ...the Jews went to three schools in their life. Three bets. The first bet, the first school... ...that all the Jewish boys went to was Bet Zafar. Jesus would have gone to Bet Zafar. It's elementary school, usually from five to ten... ...they would go... ...and it would either be in the synagogue or in the rabbi's house... And you would memorize the Torah. That's the purpose of the first school. Bet Safar is where you memorize. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Ten-year-olds sometimes had memorized the whole first five books of the Bible. I can't even remember my social security number. And they would have memorized this because they did it every day. And that set them up when they were ten years old for the second school. Still, all of the boys would go. Sexist back then, now all the boys and all the girls go. They would go from Bet-Safar to Bet-Talmud. If Bet-Safar is elementary school, Bet-Talmud is trade school. You learn to take what you've learned and put it in your life. And the way you do that is you read the rest of the Bible. They'd memorize the Psalms and the Prophets, the history of the Old Testament. But they'd also learn to ask questions. Very different. Fareed Zakaria, just this uh, morning on CNN, was talking about education here and around the rest of the world. And in the West, for us, education is memorizing the answers, getting the answers right on the test. We're into information transfer. But for the Jew, answering a question wasn't the same way. For instance, a rabbi might ask a student, what's 2 plus 2? We'd all raise our hand. But in those days, the best way to answer a question was with another question. They'd say, the rabbi would say, what's 2 plus 2? And the best answer would be, rabbi, rabbi, what's the square root of 16? They tricked you. They're going, oh, gee, what is <laughs> it? Oh, it's 4. 4, 4, Right. You wouldn't just give the answer, you'd lead them into another question because questions are what keep the dialogue going, what make the argument worthwhile. Where you really learn is where you talk back and forth. That's what Bet Talmud is all about. Jesus learns this so well. 41 questions asked of Jesus in the New Testament. 35 times Jesus answers the question with another question. Because Jews were taught that it's in the going back and forth that God gives us all the truth. The first bet is elementary school. And the second bet is trade school. And at 14, where they were uh, brought into their bar mitzvah and became young men, a very small group of them continued in school and almost all the rest went out and learned how to be carpenters or die makers, or farmers. But a very few went to grad school called Bet Midrash. Now you might know from studying Jewish culture that the Midrash is the commentary on the Bible. It's not just the study of it, it's not just the questions about it, it's the going back and forth about what it really means, how it applies. The Midrash, it's grad school. But for the Jews, then and now, only the best and the brightest get to do that. So about 14 young uh, Harvard and Yale and Stanford-level Jewish boys took the next step. Everybody wanted to be a rabbi. That was was the height of popularity back then. You were the important person in the community. More important than the rich person was the rabbi. Everybody wanted their son to be a rabbi or their daughter to marry a rabbi. So at 14 or so, the Harvard-Yale smart little ones would try to keep going and they would approach a rabbi and ask if they could become the rabbi's student. That was Bet Midrash, to become the student of a rabbi. So a rabbi might see what they knew. He'd ask questions. He'd say, for instance, what does it mean, young man, what does it mean to honor the Sabbath? Well, a student might say, oh, oh, this is great. To, uh, we are supposed on the Sabbath to do absolutely nothing. It's a day off. We get to sit around. And the rabbi would go crazy. No! You have broken the Torah. No. And the kid would slink away. The next student would come up and be asked the same question and say, Oh, um, Sabbath. A Sabbath is to remember and reflect that we are no longer slaves. Huh? Yeah, we are brought from the kingdom of darkness and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And Sabbath is the day that we devote our an entire day to say, I am more than a slave who builds bricks. I am designed to enjoy God. And the rabbi would say, you, come here. Come with me. Jesus would say the same thing. Come with me. The rabbi quizzed you and rarely determined that you were good enough, that you were Harvard or Yale or Stanford or Wheaton. And, uh, and, and and he would say, if they passed, the rare one in a village passed, he'd say, okay, come with me and take my yoke upon you. Remember Jesus talks about taking his yoke upon you? The yoke of a rabbi were the way that the rabbi interpreted the Bible. The laws that the rabbi interpreted to live was his yoke. And if you took on the yoke of a particular rabbi... You interpreted the Bible the same way. You followed God the same way. Take my yoke upon you and follow me means to go into Bet Midrash. Becoming a rabbi like this rabbi. So the rabbi would say, take my yoke upon you and boy, you better work hard. And they would. Between 14 and 30, they would do everything just like the rabbi did. That system continues some days Even in Israel today, the ultra-Orthodox, whether they are in New York or Israel, train their rabbis the same way. If you're in New York in the garment district or the diamond district, you walk and you see the rabbi with the hat walking down the street, you see two or three walking behind him following the rabbi. They go into the bathroom. Everybody goes into the bathroom. It is learning on-the-job training. One quote from the Mishnah, That's the commentary on the Old Testament says, May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you get so close to your rabbi that as he walks through the streets, as he walks from path to path, village to village in the Old Testament, and is yelling and waving and teaching and kicking up dust, may you be so close that the dust of the rabbi settles upon you. May you be covered in the dust of the rabbi, you blessed ones. Well, that's, that's good for those few people who get into Harvard or Yale. But most of the Jews did not. Most of the time, the rabbi decided, no, obviously you know Torah, but you don't have what it takes to be just like me. So go home, make babies, pray that those children become babies, learn a trade, learn the family business, live a good life, maybe your kids will do better. That is why we are back to the text. Look now again at Mark chapter 1. It says, And Jesus came along the Sea of Galilee and came up to two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Why were they fishermen? Because they were not able to make the cut. A rabbi had probably told them that they were not holy enough, good enough, smart enough, and sent them to go fish. Jesus walks up to the second string, the losers, the rejects, and instead of having them ask him, Jesus asks them, Come, follow me. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come follow me, Jesus says, and I'll make you rabbis. I'll make you mini-me's. Not fishers of fish, but fishers of the souls of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, i got to tell you, I've read this story for 30 years now, and all of a sudden it just struck me as a little weird. The guy walks along the lake and says, Hey, you two, come on, let's go. And they just jump up and follow him. That seems odd to me. But doesn't it make more sense now? If Jesus is inviting them into Bet Midrash, after they've already flunked out, the president of Harvard, the president of Yale, comes up and says, I think you've got it. I think you can do this. Come on. Follow me. And going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, in a boat with their father preparing their nets. And Jesus called them and immediately left their boat and they left their father and followed Jesus. You know what's interesting about this? The next verse does not say Zebedee was standing at the dock going, Wait a minute! Wait a minute! What about the fish? What am I going to tell your mother? It's not in there because it was an honor to have your sons leave to follow a rabbi in spite of the fact that they were rich fishermen. They had employees. It's an honor. And so instead of Zebedee being upset, I can see him that night going home. What am I going to tell the wife? What am I going to tell the wife? Uh, And and saying, the boys are gone. What happened? Where are the boys? Did they drown? Where are they gone? Well, the rabbi Yeshua of Nazareth, he called them. They got into Harvard. They're going. The next day, Zebedee's walking through the town, and instead of whining that he's going to have to hire a new person for the boat, his chest is puffed out. He's swaggering a little as he walks into the net store. Like a dad, casually, like you and I would do, casually dropping in. Did you hear my daughter got into Stanford? (laughs) Did you hear the boys going to Harvard? He's with Rabbi Jesus. He's going to become special. But the boys had done nothing better. And they were boys. They had done nothing that made them work harder. There was no New Year's resolution, no Harvard degree, no getting it right every time. Instead, they were just asked. They were just asked by King Jesus to follow him. And following him... Getting in the dust of this different rabbi, seeing all the odd things he did, all the strange things he taught, it changed them over time. Not because of anything they did, but because they got close to the rabbi. It even changed Peter, the blockhead. It could even change you or me. After Jesus dies, Jesus has his followers preach a sermon. In the book of Acts, it said... They stood up in front of thousands and people were amazed. And they were brought before the rabbis to face judgment. And the rabbis were amazed, it says in the book of Acts, seeing that these were uneducated fishermen. Marveling at their boldness, the rabbis noted that they had been with Jesus. The dust of their rabbi had stuck to them. Jesus is still walking up to people and saying, come on, follow me. He wants to use you to build not this. He wants us to build this. A community where people can get the dust of the rabbi into their city, into their schools, on their friends, and not even the gates of hell will be able to stop it. Because God says this will happen. Christ is walking down the beach towards you right now, saying the time is now. This is the important time. Come and follow me. Not a New Year's resolution, not a try harder, not a get the answer right. Can you get up and follow him in a fresh way? One of the hymns in our tradition uh, uh, talks about following Jesus, but it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. So many of you have at different times said you want to follow the rabbi, you want to get the dust of the rabbi on you, but prone to wander, you have slipped a different way. And you need, again, to repent, to turn toward the rabbi in a new year and get close so that the dust of the rabbi brings grace and life and hope and healing to you.